Chapter Twelve of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. All the principal streets of the old town of Hereford were thronged with personages of various conditions and degrees. Towards the evening of one of those soft but cloudy summer days, when the sun makes his full warmth felt, but without the glare which dazzles the eye when he shines unveiled upon the world. That street, however, to which we shall conduct the reader, was narrow, so that not more than three or four horsemen could ride abreast, and yet it was one of the best in town. But in reality the space for passengers was much wider than it seemed, for, as was then very common, especially upon the frontiers of Wales, one half of the ground floor of the houses was taken up by a long, open arcade, which sheltered the pedestrians from the rain at some periods of the year, and from the heat at others. From the first floors of these houses, just high enough to allow a tall horse, mounted by a tall man, with a lance in his hand, to pass without striking the head of the cavalier or the weapon he carried, projected long poles, usually gilt, and suspended therefrom appeared many of the various signs which are now restricted to inns and taverns, but were then common to every mansion of any importance. Down this street, and underneath innumerable symbols of swans, and horses, and eagles, and mermaids, and falcons, and doves, and of all those heterogeneous mixtures of birds, beasts, and fishes, which the fertile fancy of man ever confounded, were riding, at the time I speak of, various groups of horsemen, while ever and anon the progress of one party or another would be stopped by some man, woman, or child, darting out from the arcade at the side, and holding a conversation, short or long, as the circumstances might be, with one of the equestrians. Amongst other groups in the gay and animated scene was one which remained ungreeted by any of the good people of the town, but which was suffered to pass along uninterrupted till it reached a second-rate inn called the Maypole. It consisted of four human beings and three beasts, namely three men and a woman, two horses, and a sleek, vicious-looking mule. On one of the horses was mounted a tall, sturdy man in the guise of a servant. On the other was evidently a fellow-labourer in the same vineyard. But he was not alone, for on a pillion behind him appeared a female form, covered with a thick veil which shrouded the face, so that it was impossible to see whether there was beauty beneath or not, although the figure gave indications of youth and grace which were not to be mistaken. Jogging along upon the mule, with his legs hanging down easily by the side of the animal, and his fat stomach resting peacefully upon the saddle, was a jolly friar clothed in grey, with his capouche thrown back, the sun not being troublesome, and a bold head, the glistening smoothness of which had descended by tradition even to Shakespeare's day, and was recorded by him in his Two Gentlemen of Verona, peeping out from a narrow ring of jet-black hair, scarcely streaked with grey. His face was large and jovial, which, in good sooth, was no distinction in those times between one friar and another, but there was withal a look of roguish fun about the corners of his small grey eyes, and a jeering smile, full of arch satire, quivered upon his lip, completely neutralising the somewhat sensual and food-loving expression of the under one which moved up and down every time he spoke, like a valve, to let out the words that could never come in again. Indeed, 
he seemed to be one of those easy-living friars who, knowing neither sorrow nor privation in their own persons, appeared to look upon grief and care with a ready laugh and a light joke, as if no such things in reality exist. His rosy gills, his double chin, and his large round ear all spoke of marrow and fatness, and indeed, at the very first sight, the spectators saw that he was not only a well-contented being, but one who had good reason to be so. Just as they reached the entrance of the tavern which we have mentioned, the friar, by some mismanagement, contrived to get his mule's hind quarters towards the servant, who was riding singly on horseback, and by a touch of the heel given, apparently, to make the beast put itself into a more convenient position for all parties, he produced a violent fit of kicking, in the course of which the horseman received a blow upon the fleshy part of his thigh, which made him roar with pain. The seat upon the vicious beast's back was no easy one, and yet the fat monk kept his position, laughing heartily, and calling his mule a petulant rogue, while he held him by his left ear, or patted his pampered neck. As soon as the fit was done, he rolled quietly off at the side, and looking up to his companions, saw, or appeared to see, for the first time, the wry faces which the servant-man was making. "'Bless my heart!' he cried. "'Has he touched thee, the good-for-nothing rogue? I will chastise him for it soundly. "'If he have not broken my leg, it is not his fault,' replied the man, dismounting and limping round the horse. "'And you have as great a share in it, mad priest, for bringing his heels round where they had no business to be.' "'Nay!' rejoined the friar. "'I brought not his heels round. He brought them himself, and me along with them.' It was all intended to cast me off, so the offence is towards myself, and I shall punish him severely. He shall have five barleycorns of food less for his behaviour. Pshaw, said the serving-man, looking up at the inn. You are jesting foully, friar. I am sorry I let you join us. Is this the hostel you boasted had such good wine? It seems but a poor place for such commendation. "'Thou shalt find the liquor better than in any house in Hereford,' replied he of the grey gown. "'Whether you choose mead, or metheglin, or excellent warm burgundy, or cool Bordeaux, "'taste and try, taste and try, and if you find that I have deceived you, "'you shall cut me into pieces not an inch square, and sew me along the high road. "'There is good lodging, too. Canst thou not trust a friar?' The man grumbled forth some reply, not very laudatory, of the order to which his fat friend belonged, and in a few minutes after the whole party were seated in a hall which, for the time being, lacked other tenants. The usual hour of supper was over, and in many a hostelry in those days the wayfarers would have found no food in such a case unless they brought it with them. But the host was a compassionate man, and, moreover, you write well the twinkle of the jolly friar's eye, so that, for old friendship's sake, many a savoury mess was speedily set before them, together with a large flagon of wine which fully bore out the character that had been given to it by the friar as they rode along. Under the influence of such consolations, the serving-man forgot his bruise, and the lady, laying aside her veil, showed a pretty face, with which the reader is in some part acquainted, being none other than that which, once happy and bright, graced the door of the little village inn under the name of Kate Greenlee. There was some sadness upon that fair countenance, the cheerful smile was gone, 
although there was a smile of, of a different character still left. The freshness, the ease, the lightness were all wanting, though there was a greater depth of thought and feeling in the expression than during the pleasant days of village sport and girlish coquetry. The rough touch of passion had brushed the bloom from the fruit, and Kate Greenley, in look at least, was three or four years older than a few weeks before. As she put aside her veil to take part in the meal, the eye of the friar fixed upon her till she reddened under his gaze, looking half angry, half abashed. But the moment after the colour became deeper still, when he said, "'Methinks, fair lady, I have seen that sweet face before.' "'Perhaps so,' she replied. "'I cannot tell. There's many a wandering friar comes to my father's door, but I heed them not, good sooth.' The friar laughed, answering gaily, "'Beauty, fair girl, is like the sun, is marked by all, but marketh none.' "'Try some of these stewed eels, pretty one. They are worthy of the Wye, whose waters have no mud to give them a foul flavour. Try them, try them. They are good for the complexion. And now, master serving-man, what think you of the wine? Did you ever taste better out of the spare tankard which the butler hideth behind the cellar-door?' The serving-man was forced to admit that he had seldom drunk such good liquor, and gradually getting over the ill-humour which had been sharpened by a lurking suspicion that the heels of the mule had been turned towards him by human agency, rather than the brute's own obstinacy, enjoyed his supper, and laughed and talked with the friar till the wine seemed to mount somewhat into the brain of both. In the meanwhile, the lighter love Kate Greenley sat by for some three-quarters of an hour, melancholy in the midst of mirth. The thoughts of home had been called up in her heart by the monk's words, the thoughts of home and happy innocence, and she now found that in giving up every treasure with which heaven had gifted her lot, for one trinket that she could not always wear upon her hand, she had made a mighty sacrifice for an uncertain reward. The only object that could console her was away, and after enduring for the space of time we have mentioned the pangs of others' mirth, she rose and said she would seek her chamber, as they had to proceed early. The two serving-men sat idly at the table, leaving her to find her way alone, for they reverenced but little their master's leman. But the jovial fat friar started up from his seat with an activity which he seemed little capable of, saying, "'Stay, stay, pretty one, I will call my host or hostess to you. They are worthy, kind people as ever lived,' and he walked side by side with her towards the door. Had the eyes of her two companions been upon her, they would have seen her start, as she was quitting the room with the friar, but their looks were directed to the tankard which was passing between them, and in a moment after the rich full voice of the grey gown was heard calling for the host and hostess. In another instant he rolled back into the room, and resuming his place at the table, did as much justice as any one to the good wine of the maypole. "'Here's to thy lord, whosoever he may be,' cried the friar, addressing the serving-man, whom his mule had kicked, God prosper his good deeds and frustrate his bad ones, if he commits any. I'll not drink that, replied the worthy, who had carried Kate Greenley behind him. I say, God prosper my master and all his works, good, bad, and indifferent. I have no business to take exceptions. Tut, man, drink the toast and sing us a song, cried he of the grey gown. Sing first thyself, fat friar, answered the serving man. 
The friar rejoined, That I will, and after taking another deep draught, he poured forth in full mellow strains the well-known old song, In a tavern let me die, and a bottle near me lie, that the angelic choir may cry, God's blessings on the toper, etc. The song was much applauded, and as both the friar's companions were now sufficiently imbued with drink to be ready for any species of jollity, the same musical propensity seized upon them both in turn, and they poured forth a couple of strains which, if they could be found written down in the exact terms in which they were sung, might well be considered as invaluable specimens of the English poetry of that early age. As they had no great tendency to edification, however, and contained more ribaldry than wit, the gentle reader will probably excuse their omission in this place. While thus with mirth and revelry three out of the personages whom we saw arrived at the inn passed more than one hour of the night, the fourth was ushered to a chamber hung with dark painted cloth, while a lamp placed in the window showed a deep recess projecting over the street, and making, as it were, a room within the room. The hostess accompanied Kate Greenley to her apartment, and for some time bustled about, seeing that all was in order, much to the poor girl's discomfort. In vain she assured the good landlady that she had all she wanted. In vain she expressed weariness and a desire to retire to bed. Still the hostess found something to set to rights, some table to place, some stool to dust, while ever and anon she declared that her girls were slattens, and her chamberlain a lazy knave. At length she turned towards the door, and Kate Greenly thought that she was going to be freed from her presence, but it was only to call for her husband, and to tell him at the top of her voice that he was wonderful slow. The poor girl could bear it no longer, but approaching the deep recess where the lamp stood in the window, she mounted the two little steps which separated it from the rest of the room, and standing close to the light unfolded a paper which she held in her hand. At first she could scarcely see the words which were written therein, but shading her eyes with her hand, she gazed intently on the lines and read, "'Return to your father. Leave him not heartbroken with shame and sorrow. If you are willing to go back, I will soon find means, for I have more help at hand than you wot of. But say one word to the hostess, and ere daylight to-morrow you should be on the way to Barnsdale. As I know the whole, so I tell you that the last hope is before you. If you go back, you may have peace and ease, though you have cast away happiness. If you go forward, you may have a few hours of joy, but a long life of misery, neglect, destitution, and despair, without the hope of this world, or the hope of the next. The Friar Kate trembled very much, and her whole thoughts seemed to refuse all direction or control. But at that moment the host of the Maypole himself appeared, bearing a small silver chalice of warm wine, and a plate filled with many-coloured comforts. "'I pray you, taste the sleeping-cup,' he said, approaching his fair guest, and as she mechanically followed the common custom of the day in taking the cup, putting a few comforts in, and raising it for an instant to her lips, she saw the eyes of both her companions fix upon her countenance with a look of interest and inquiry, and perceived at a glance that they also had, in some way, been made acquainted with her history. The burning glow of shame, the first time that she had felt it fully, came into Kate Greenley's cheek, but it only roused her pride, and instead of trampling that viper of the human heart under her feet, 
After a moment's pause to recover herself, she said with a look and air of a queen, "'I want nothing more. You may go. If I want aught else, I will call.' The host and hostess retired, wishing her good night, but she thought she saw upon the man's lip one of those maddening smiles which say more than words, but do not admit of reply. The moment they were gone, she clasped her hands together and burst into tears. Tears not calm and soothing, tears not bitter and purifying, but tears of fierce and passionate anger at meeting, perhaps, kinder treatment than she deserved. Seating herself upon the step to the window, she sobbed for a few minutes with uncontrollable vehemence, and then, starting up, she approached the lamp and once more read the lines she had received. They seemed to change the current of her thoughts again, for her eye fixed upon vacancy, the paper dropped from her hand, and once or twice she uttered in a low, solemn voice the word, Return! Oh, no! she cried at length. No, I cannot return. What, return to my father's house, with every object that my eyes could light upon, crying out upon me, and telling me what I was once, and what I am now, to have the jeers and smiles and nods of my companions, and be pointed at, as the lighter love and the wanton, to be marked in the walk, and in the church, to be shunned like a leper, to be pitied by those who hate me most, and looked cold upon by those who loved me. No, 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 I can never return. There is no return in life from any course that we have once taken. I feel it, I know it now. We may strive hard, we may look back, we may stretch forth our arms towards the place from which we set out, but we can never reach it again, struggle however we may. No, no, I must forward, I have chosen my path, I have sealed my own fate, and by it I must abide. She paused and thought for several minutes, and as she did so, it would seem the fears and apprehensions, the doubts and anxieties that dock the steps of sin, the hell-hounds that are ever ready to fall upon their prey the moment that lassitude overtakes it on its onward course, seized upon the heart of poor Kate Greenley with their envenomed teeth. Yes, you may struggle on, poor thing. You may burst away for an instant from the fangs that hold. You may get a fresh start and run on, thinking that you have distanced them. But those fell pursuers, fear, fear and apprehension, doubt and anxiety, are still behind you, and shall hunt you unto death. They were now, for the first time, tearing the sides of their victim, and the shapes they assumed may be discovered by the words that broke from her in her mental agony. He will never surely abandon me. He will never surely ill-treat me. After all that he has promised, after all that he has told me, after all that he has sworn, he will never surely be so base, so utterly base. And yet why has he not come on with me? Why, after two poor days' companionship, send me on with serving men? If he needs must to London, why not take me with him? But no, she continued, soothing herself with fond hopes. No, it cannot be. He has some weighty business on hand requiring instant dispatch. Doubtless his journey was too swift and fatiguing for a woman. Oh, yes, he will come back to me soon. Perhaps he is already at his castle. Perhaps I may see him tomorrow. And she clapped her pretty hands with joy at the happiness which imagination had called up. 
At that moment, however, by one of those strange turns of thought which the mind sometimes suddenly takes, whether we will or not, like a bird struggling away from the hand that would hold it, the poor image of Ralph Harland rose up before her, and the satisfaction she felt at the idea of again seeing her seducer seemed to contrast itself painfully in imagination with the anguish which he must endure at never beholding more the object of his earliest love, and knowing that she was in the arms of another. What, she asked herself, what would be my own feelings under such circumstances? And the answer which naturally sprang to her lips from the eager and passionate heart that beat within her bosom was, I should kill someone and die. The contemplation, however, was too painful. She would think of it no more. Sorrow and repentance had not yet sufficiently taken hold of her to render it difficult for Kate Greeny to cast away thought with the usual lightness of her nature, and she answered the reproaches of conscience, as usually happens, with a falsehood. "'Oh, he will soon find someone to console him,' she said, and, for fear of her own better judgment convicting her of an untruth, she hastened to employ herself on the trifles of the toilet, and to seek in sleep that repose of heart which her waking hours were never more to know. But there was a thorn in her pillow, too, and her nights had lost no small portion of their peace. The following morning dawned bright and clear, and Kate Greenley's state of mind was changed. Fears and apprehensions, self-reproach and regret, had vanished in the shades of night. The stillness, the darkness, the solitude, those powerful encouragers of sad thoughts, were gone. The busy, bustling, sunshiny day was present. She heard songs coming up from the streets, she heard voices talking and laughing below, all the sounds and sights of merry life were around her, and her heart took the top of the wave, and bounded onward in the light of hope. Her only care as she dressed herself in the morning was how she should meet the keen grey eye of the friar. But that was soon resolved. She would frown upon him, she thought, she would treat him with silent contempt, and doubtless he would not dare to say another word for fear of calling upon himself chastisement from her two attendants. She was spared all trouble upon the subject, however, for the friar had departed before daybreak. She had sent him no answer by the hostess, and her silence was answer enough. After a hasty meal, the lighter love and those who accompanied her once more set out upon their way, and rode on some fifteen miles down the Wye without stopping. Not that the two serving-men would not willingly have paused at one of the little towns they passed, to let the fair companion of their journey take some repose, but Kate herself was eager to proceed. Hope and expectation were busy at her heart. Hope, like that of a moth, flies on to burn itself to death in the flame of disappointment. At length upon a high woody bank, showing a bold craggy face towards the river, the reader who has travelled that way may know it, for a little country church now crowns the trees, appeared a small castellated tower, with one or two cottages seeking protection beneath its walls. The serving-man who rode beside her pointed forward with his hand as they passed over a slight slope in the ground, which first presented this object to their sight, saying, "'There is the castle, madam.' Kate looked forward, and her eyes sparkled, and in a few minutes more they were entering the archway under the building. The castle was smaller than she expected to see, 
It was, in fact, merely one of those strong towers which had been built about a century before, for the protection of the normal encroachers upon that fair portion of the island, into which the earliest known possessors of the whole land had been driven by the sword of various invaders. Many of these towers, with a small territory round them, had fallen into the possession of the younger sons of noble families, upon the mere tenure of defending them against the attacks of the enemy, and although the incursions of the Welsh upon the English lands were now much less frequent than they had been some time before, the lords of these small castles had often to hold them out against the efforts of other still more formidable assailants. It mattered not to Kate, however, whether the place was large or small, how furnished or decorated was the same to her. It was his castle, his, to whom all her thoughts and feelings were now given, and she looked upon it as the home of love and joy, where all the hours of the future were to be passed. Her disappointments began almost at the threshold. An old warder who let them in not only said in a rough tone that Sir Richard de Ashby had not yet arrived, but gazed over the form of the female visitor with a look of harsh and somewhat sullen displeasure. He murmured something to himself, too, the greater part of which she did not hear, but words that sounded like, this new Lehman caught her ear, and made her start, while a thrill of agony indescribable passed through her bosom at the thought of a name which might but too justly be applied to her. The eyes of two or three archers, however, who were hanging about the gate, were upon her, as she knew, and, fancying that the same term might be in their hearts also, she hurried on after the old warder, who said he would show her the chamber which had been prepared for her by his master's orders. She found it convenient and fitted up with every comfort, some of the articles being evidently new, and she concluded with love's eager credulity that these objects had been sent down to decorate her apartment and make everything look gay and cheerful in her eyes. She was well used also, but still, amongst the men who surrounded her, there was a want of that respect which, although she knew she had fairly forfeited all claim to it, she was angry and grieved not to obtain. She had fancied, in her idle vanity, that the concubine of a man of rank would approach, in a degree at least, to the situation of his wife, and she now consoled herself with believing that she could easily induce Richard de Ashby, if not to punish such want of reverence, at least to put a stop to it. But day passed by, after day, without the appearance of him for whom she had sacrificed all and melancholy memories and vain regrets kept pouring upon her mind more and more strongly, till she could hardly bear the weight of her own thoughts. At length one day, towards eventide, she saw, as she wandered round the battlements, which were left unguarded, a small party of horsemen coming up over the hill, and with impatience which would brook no restraint, she ran down to meet him who, she was convinced, was now approaching. The old warder would have prevented her from passing the gate, but she bade him stand back in so stern and peremptory a tone that he gave way, for few are the minds upon which the assumption of authority does not produce some effect. Kate Greenlee was not mistaken. The party consisted of her seducer and four or five soldiers whom he had obtained at Hereford for the purpose of strengthening his little garrison, war being by this time imminent and the post he had held considered of some importance. Richard de Ashby sprang down from his horse to meet her, and kissed her repeatedly, 
with many expressions of tenderness and affection. It is true he spoke to her lightly, called her pretty one, and used those terms with which he might have fondled a child, but which he would never have thought of employing to a woman he much respected. To other ears this might have marked the difference between Kate Greenley's real situation and that which Fancy almost taught her to believe was hers. But poor Kate saw it not, for happiness swallowed up all other feeling. He was with her, he was kind, he was affectionate, she was no longer a solitary being, without love or joy or occupation or self-respect, and that evening and the next day and the next passed over in happiness which obliterated every sensation of remorse for the past or apprehension for the future. Gradually, however, a change came over Richard to Ashby. He lost some of his tenderness. He now and then spoke angrily. He would be out on horseback the whole day and return at night, tired, imperious, and irritable. Kate tried to soothe him, but tried in vain. He uttered harsh and unkind words. He laughed at her tears. He turned from her caresses. It were painful to pursue and recapitulate the very well-known course of the events which, in nine cases out of ten, follow such conduct as she had adopted. The retribution was beginning. The pangs of ill-requited affection, of betrayed confidence, and of disappointed hope rapidly took possession of the young, light, willful heart, which had inflicted the same on hers, and, in the gentler paroxysms of her grief, Kate would sit and think of young Ralph Harland, and his true love, of the father she had deceived and disgraced, of the happy scenes of her childhood and her youth, her village companions, her innocent sports, the flowers gathered in the early morning, and the maypole on the green. Of all these she would think, I say, in the gentler moments of her sorrow, and would sit and weep for many an hour together. But there were other times when a fiercer and a haughtier mood would come upon her, when disappointed vanity and irritated pride would raise their voice, as well as injured love, and dark and passionate thoughts would pass through her mind, sometimes flashing forth fiery schemes of vengeance, like lightning from a cloud, soon swallowed up in the obscurity again. An angry word also would often break from her, when she saw herself trifled with or neglected or ill-treated, but it only excited a mocking laugh, or some insulting answer. It seemed, indeed, as if Richard de Ashby took a pleasure in seeing her fair face and beautiful figure wrought by strong passion, for when he beheld her wrath kindled, he would urge her on with mirth or taunts, till the fire would flash from her eyes and then drown itself in tears. There was still, however, so much of unsated passion yet left in his bosom as to make him generally soothe her in the end and though sometimes Kate's heart would continue to burn for a whole day, after one of these scenes, they generally ended with her face hid on his bosom. The very quickness and fiery nature of her spirit, indeed, gave her charm in his cold, dissolute eyes, which none of the softer and the weaker victims who had preceded her had ever possessed. It kept his sensations alive, amused and excited him, and he treated her as a good cavalier will sometimes treat a fiery horse which he now spurs into fury, now reigns and governs with a strong hand, now soothes and caresses into tranquillity and gentleness. His servants marked all this and smiled, and one would turn to another and say, This has lasted longer than it ever lasted before. 
she must have some spell upon him to keep his love for a whole month but it was clear to see that under such constant vehemence and irritation affection on her part at least could not long endure or that as will sometimes happen love would change its own nature and act the part of hate End of chapter 12